episode of Genesis. My name is Jonathan Chan. I'm so glad that you can join me today as we continue our journey through all the chapters of Genesis. Today, we'll be going through Genesis chapter 29, chapter 30, and chapter 31. That's right, three chapters. Before we begin, let's start off with a video clip because we always start off with a video clip. So sit back, relax, and enjoy our video clip and we'll be right back. Like I said, we are now embarking on a journey through Genesis chapters 29 to 31. Last time, when we were exploring chapter 28, I entitled the talk, Watershed. Why? Well, if you recall, Jacob was in a load of trouble. First, he deceived his brother Esau for his birthright, using a bowl of stew and a piece of bread. Then, he stole his firstborn blessing by deceiving his dear old dad, Isaac. And now, he's fleeing like a fugitive because Esau wants to kill him. Not only that, but he was also given a task to go to a foreign land, which he only knew of a general direction, i.e. east, to find a wife with nothing to give as a dowry. Now, dowries are those uh, gifts to, in those days, to pay for your wife. Now, if you recall, Abraham's chief servant was loaded with camels, servants, gold, and silver to find Isaac's wife, i.e. Rebekah. But now, Isaac sends his son off with nothing, just the clothes on his back and his Nike sandals. Jacob only had the clothes on his back and sandals on his feet. And to tell you the truth, in my opinion, Isaac's pretty pathetic. Why did Isaac tell him to go with nothing? He knows full well that he needed a dowry. We don't know. But what we do know is that Jacob had a cloud of guilt hanging over his head and as a fugitive on a run. You see, he's a deceiver. He's a manipulator. He's selfish and really ambitious to get what he wants. Is this the type of person who God will use to continue his redemptive plan for the world? Or is the world screwed? For Jacob, he too must be thinking, is my blessing, the God-given vision, legit? Because I deceived my way in order to get it. Or did I screw up my grandfather's covenant? And did I just put his entire work into a wasteland? Then God affirmed that it was legit through his dream. Great, right? Awesome! A turning point! A watershed moment. Will it be sunshine and rainbows from now on? 
Is Jacob going to be completely an opposite person, a total different 180 degree turn person from who he was with a snap of a finger? Will he no longer be a deceiver but trustworthy? Will he be uh, selfless rather than selfish? Nope. How would God then change Jacob from a deceiver to a man of integrity, honor, and selflessness? Things that I'm sure Jacob desires God to do in him and things that maybe we want God to do for us right now. The scene that I showed you was from Saving Private Ryan and it was in World War II context. Historians agreed that the turning point, the watershed moment, was the Battle of Stalingrad between 1942 to 1943. The Nazi army suffered immense casualties when they were attacking the Soviet Union and was already severely weakened because they lost. This was the turning point in the start of the Nazi defeat in the war. However, remember the years that I just mentioned, 1942 to 1943. I just showed you a scene from Saving Private Ryan, and what did the subtitle say prior to the scene? It was the scene in 1944, a year after Stalingrad. Did this look like anything like sunshine and rainbows? Did, this, did their approach to the beach look anything like sunshine and rainbows? No. Uh, here, here's another watershed moment. The news about the vaccines. Vaccines was a watershed moment for us in the year 2020, near the end of 2020. And for the world, in fact. But does that mean everything will be sunshine and rainbows from then on? No. COVID is still spreading. And even faster with a new variant, actually more variants. And then again, it's running rampant around the world. And it's going insane currently at this date in China. More people are infected. More people are dying. Yet... There is an end to COVID in sight, but not right now. It's just going to be a long, arduous journey for all of us to get there. And that's the point I would like to elaborate on. It is this. Like Jacob, we all accepted Jesus. Well, I don't know. If you are a Christian, you would relate with me. We all had a moment when we accepted Jesus as our Lord and Savior. When we are now called saved ones in Jesus. It does not mean, though, that life will be sunshine and rainbows from that point on when we accepted him. We still have a lot of our old selves that God will purge and prune, and I will call it growing up. Before we receive Jesus, we may be habitually selfish, liars, procrastinators, dishonest, angry, impatient, and maybe even jealous. And now... I'm sure you and I desire that God would transform us to be the opposite of those things, right? However, it's not immediate, is it? We all know that. Once we come out of that tub of water after baptism, we're not immediately going to be the most patient person in the world or the most humblest person in the world. No, it's a humongous work in progress. So I'm sure you agree that we all still have our old selves that need purging or to grow up. How does God do it? Jacob needed a lot of growing up. And in these next two chapters, or three, 
We see how God was pruning and purging Jacob's old self using his encounters with Laban, Rachel, and Leah. And get this, growing up, though it hurts like heck, is God's providence. It took Jacob 20 plus years of growing up from the time he met Rachel at the well to finally have any resemblance of the leader he was called to be. So let's begin. By the way, just a fair warning, we will be reading quite a bit of scripture today. So please bear with me by maybe grabbing a cup of coffee right now or grab a drink, sit back, relax and enjoy the show. I'll do my very best to read it with pizzazz, some oomph, some oompha, you know, just to create some interesting moments. But you know what? If it was anything like my rap last week, you better get a drink. Genesis chapter 29, verse 4 to 6 and 9 to 12. Jacob went over to the shepherds and asked, Where are you from, my friends? We are from Haran, they answered. Do you know a man there named Laban, the grandson of Nahor? He asked. Yes, we do, they replied. Look, here comes his daughter Rachel with the flock now. And because Rachel was his cousin, the daughter of Laban, did I say Laban? Laban, his mother's brother, and because the sheep and goats belonged to his uncle Laban, Jacob went over to the well and moved the stone from its mouth and watered his uncle's flock. Then Jacob kissed Rachel, and he wept out loud. He explained to Rachel that he was her cousin on her father's side, the son of her aunt Rebecca. So Rachel quickly ran and told her father Laban. What luck! How on earth did Jacob run into shepherds who belonged to Laban? Remember, he had no clue where he was going. He was just heading east. Now, if you remember, Laban is the brother of Rebekah. So this makes Laban Jacob's uncle. And Jacob is going to marry his cousin. Never mind. But before we jump into Jacob going goo goo gaga over Rachel, the author made a point in mentioning the well. Because it was at the well, the chief servant of Abraham prayed to God that his search for a wife for Isaac is in God's hands and that God will lead him to discern and find who God wants him to find. Do we see Jacob praying to God for guidance and discernment prior to this encounter? Nope. Do we see Jacob praising God that he, that, you know, defying all odds, happened to find shepherds belonging to Laban? Nope. Not only is Jacob empty-handed, remember, he only had his clothes on his back, he sees Rachel, he likes what he sees, mm, me like, and summoning his Hulk-like powers from his suddenly enlarged testicles, he moves this stone that was supposed to be so heavy that it takes three or more teamster unionized shepherds to move. Notice how the three groups of shepherds were just waiting around for more shepherds to come. Yes, I don't want to make any illusions, but you could take a wild guess of who I'm trying to make a metaphor for. So Jacob do not, did not seek God's guidance, even though God provided him this chance meeting with Laban shepherds. Instead of praising God immediately, he immediately resorted to his animal instincts. Yeah, not a great start when it comes to a post-watershed moment, right? He just saw what he liked and he took it. And because of this lack of discernment and not seeking God, how will God work with this guy when God is absent, completely absent in the mind of Jacob? We start this wonderful story of growing pains then. How will God transform Jacob 
to be the opposite of who he was? How will God transform us to be the opposite of who we were? Let's move on to verses 13 to 20 of chapter 29. As soon as Laban heard that his nephew Jacob had arrived, he ran out to meet him. After Jacob had stayed with Laban for about a month, Laban said to him, You shouldn't work for me without pay, just because we are relatives. Tell me how much your wages should be. What? Why do you want your own flesh and blood to work for you? Anyway, let's move on. Now Laban had two daughters. The older daughter was named Leah, and the younger one was Rachel. There was no sparkle in Leah's eyes, but Rachel had a beautiful figure and a lovely face. Since Jacob was in love with Rachel, he told her father, I'll work for you for seven years if you'll give me Rachel, your younger daughter, as my wife. Laban says, agreed. I'd rather give her, notice Laban said her and not Rachel, to you than to anyone else. So Jacob worked seven years to pay for Rachel, but his love for her was so strong that it seemed to him but a few days. Aww. Laban runs out and wonders, who is this hulky, strong young man who impressed my daughter so much, who moved a heavy stone that my union workers couldn't move on their own? Oh, is he a potential worker? Oh, what luck! He's my nephew! He cannot possibly be unionized. Notice what Laban says. First of all, I skipped that verse, but in that verse, he acknowledges that Jacob was his relative, flesh and blood. But then he follows it up with treating Jacob as just merely an employee when he immediately talks about wages rather than keeping his oath to his family to take care of his family members. Bruce Walkie said this about Laban's reaction when he mentioned wages. Quote, since a family member would work for nothing, Laban is degrading the blood relationship between himself and Jacob into an economic arrangement. What Laban should have done as a loving relative is to help Jacob get a start on building his own home. Instead, Laban keeps Jacob as nothing more than a laborer under contract. End quote. So Jacob is being duped. Oh, what goes around comes around, right? Not only did he get duped by Laban in working for him, partly because Jacob is head over heels for Rachel, so he was blinded by love at first sight, but Laban also did a sleight of hand by saying, I'd rather give her, not specifying which daughter he would give to Jacob. Oh, what a sly, right? But if you think about it, this deception, the wheeling and dealing kind of runs in the family. And boy, does it run wild in these chapters. And the author intentionally does not mention God in any of this. Though God is absent in the minds and actions of both Laban and Jacob, the author is telling us that God's hand continues to guide and orchestrate Jacob's growing up process in the background. Though Jacob does not know it right now that God is working, God's providence of pruning Jacob is happening. Let's continue verses 21 to 30 in chapters 29. Finally, the time came for him to marry, here we go, her. Not Rachel, but her. I have fulfilled my agreement, Jacob said to Laban. Now, give me my wife so I can sleep with her. <laughs> so Laban invited everyone in the neighborhood and prepared a wedding feast. How can this possibly happen in the 21st century, right? But that night, when it was dark, Laban took Leah to Jacob and he slept with her. 
more to that. But when Jacob woke up in the morning, it was Leah. What have you done to me? Jacob raged at Laban. I worked seven years for Rachel. Why have you tricked me? Wait a minute. Wasn't it just merely just days? Now you're complaining that it's seven years? It's not our custom here to marry off a younger daughter ahead of the firstborn, Laban replied. But wait until the bridal week is over. Then we'll give you Rachel too, provided you promise to work another seven years for me. So Jacob agreed to work seven more years. A week after Jacob had married Leah, Laban gave him Rachel too. So Jacob slept with Rachel too. Of course, he was horny. And he loved her much more than Leah. He then stayed and worked for Laban the additional seven years. How drunk do you need to be to not notice that the woman in front of you is not the woman you wanted? Okay, commentators said, well, John, the bride was veiled. You know, back in those days, the bride was veiled and it was dark, etc., etc. Okay, fine. They made their point. The point the author is making here is that Jacob is now being the one deceived. Remember, he deceived Esau and Isaac and was known as the deceiver. Now, he's no longer the deceiver, but the deceived. God, in his own way, frees Jacob from being the deceiver and removes Jacob's label as the deceiver, which Jacob wanted. Jacob wanted to not to be the deceiver anymore. So God removed it and <laughs> instead replaced it with being deceived. But in doing so, <laughs> Jacob is now being deceived which Jacob wasn't expecting. Is this God's way of humbling Jacob? Is this God's way of pruning Jacob? The author says, yes. Though at first we the readers only see Laban as the actor of all this, God is still the conductor, the one who guides people's minds and actions no matter how fallen, cruel, and sinful their intentions may be. God, to quote my friend Ken Shikamatsu, uses everything and wastes nothing. He uses everything and wastes nothing to prune and mold Jacob to be the patriarch he was called to be. Now, Jacob, he, now Jacob, he still has a lot to work on. Again, notice that God is nowhere mentioned in Jacob. He is still reacting based on his instincts, anger, and then accepting whatever offer Laban gives because he wants Rachel so much. So much so, that he was willing to be embarrassed by Laban for a whole entire week. God, can God use Jacob's selfishness, selfish ambition, crass decision-making, and lack of spiritual discernment to fulfill his will? This is becoming like a Korean soap opera, as opposed to a redemptive story. Let's continue. Now, this is lengthy, so bear with me. Really, fill up your glass. Dividing the passages didn't seem appropriate for me, so I decided to keep it as a whole and just read the entire thing. So please, pour yourself another bourbon. I don't have one. I don't think I'm allowed to have one <laughs> in front of the camera. So if you have a bourbon or a whiskey or a scotch, feel free to fill it up. Cheers. Let's go. Verse 31. When the Lord saw that Leah was unloved, he enabled her to have children, but Rachel could not conceive. So Leah became pregnant and gave birth to a son. She named him Reuben, for she said, The Lord has noticed my misery, and now my husband will love me. Take that, Rachel! She soon became pregnant again and gave birth to another son. She named him Simeon, for she said, The Lord heard what, that I was unloved and has given me another son. Take that again, Rachel! 
Then she became pregnant a third time and gave birth to another son. She named him Levi, for he, she said, Surely this time my husband will feel affection for me, since I have given him three sons. Again, take that, Rachel. Once again, Leah became pregnant and gave birth to another son. She named him Judah, for she said, Now I will praise the Lord. And then she stopped having children. Wham! Take that again. Four times, and I'm going to lay the smack down on my sister. When Rachel saw that she wasn't having any children for Jacob, she became jealous of her sister. Of course. Man, Leah was rubbing it in. She pleaded with Jacob, Give me children or I'll die. <laughs> then Jacob became furious with Rachel. Oh, really? <laughs> Am I God, he asked. He's the one who has kept you from having children? Then Rachel told him, Take my maid, Billa, and sleep with her. She will bear children for me, and through her I can have a family too. Okay. So Rachel gave her servant Billa to Jacob as a wife, and he slept with her. Why not, right? Billa became pregnant and presented him with a son. Rachel named him Dan, for she said, God has vindicated me. He has heard my request and given me a son. Take that, Leah. All right, that's only one out of the four. Then Billa became pregnant again and gave Jacob a second son. Rachel named him Naphtali, for, he, for she said, I have struggled hard with my sister, and I'm winning! Take that, Ra uh, Leah. Two out of four. Wait a minute, Rachel's still losing by four to two. How can she do that? I guess she's a Canucks fan. Because any win is good, right? Genesis chapter 30, verse 9 to 13. Meanwhile, Leah realized that she wasn't getting, any, getting pregnant anymore. So she took her servant Zilpah and gave her to Jacob as a wife. Soon Zilpah presented him with a son. Leah named him Gad, for she said, How fortunate I am! Then Zilpah gave Jacob a second son. And Leah named him Asher, for she said, What joy is mine! Now the other women will celebrate me. Six to two, right? Yes, six to two now. Take that, Rachel. One day during the wheat harvest, Reuben found some mandrakes growing in a field and brought them to his mother. Now, mandrakes are aphrodisiacs, superstitiously aphrodisiacs. Leah, now Rachel begged Leah, please give me some of your son's mandrakes. But Leah angrily replied, wasn't it enough for you to steal my husband? Now, will you steal my son's mandrakes too? Rachel answered, I will let Jacob sleep with you tonight if you give me some of the mandrakes. Where is Jacob in all this? So that, so that evening, as Jacob was coming home from the field, Leah went out to meet him. You must come and sleep with me tonight, she said. I have paid for you with some mandrakes that my son found. Okay. So that night, he slept with Leah. And God answered Leah's prayers. She became pregnant again and gave birth to the fifth son for Jacob? Oh yeah, because of the servants. She named him Issachar, for she said, God has rewarded me for giving my servant to my husband as a wife. Then Leah became pregnant again and gave birth to a sixth son for Jacob. Take that again, Le Rachel. She named him Zebulun, for she said, God has given me a good reward. Now my husband will treat me with respect more than Rachel, for I have given him six sons, not including my servants. Later she gave birth to a daughter and named her Dinah. Yeah, yeah, whatever, right? <laughs> 22 to 24 in chapter 30. Then God remembered Rachel's plight and answered her prayers by enabling her to have children. She became pregnant and gave birth to a son. God has removed my disgrace, she said. And she named him Joseph, for she said, May the Lord add yet another son to my family. Man, I needed. That was interesting, right? All right, anyway. Bruce Walkie says this. Quote, in naming their children, the wives reveal their own spiritual state, reflecting their struggle and their recognition of God's assistance to them in their unloved or childless states. However, 
out of pride and self-exaltation, they use the names to hurl malicious shafts at one another, end quote. Think about that. Every time one of these ladies give birth or gave birth or had their servants give birth, they named their sons not only to reflect what was going on in their hearts, but also to diss the other. Both Leah and Rachel were fighting for Jacob's love and social acceptance. Imagine knowing that you were given your name because your mom wanted to diss her sister. So imagine having a name, Alice, you're an idiot. Like, your name is Alice, you're an idiot, Chan. Like, my, name, my last name is Chan, so Alice, you're an idiot, Chan. Yeesh! Now, where is Jacob on all this? Is he just a sperm bank? Well, like Laban, who treated Jacob as merely an employee, so too his daughters treated Jacob merely as a sperm bank. Jacob was used as a pawn. Again, what goes around comes around, right? First, Jacob deceived Esau and Isaac, and then he exploited Isaac and Esau's ignorance. And now, guess who is being exploited? Jacob. Oh, man, how the tables have turned. If I were Jacob, I would probably say to myself, oh, so that's how it feels to be used. As readers, what is going on in your mind? Can a sperm bank ever be the patriarch who God will use to bring his redemptive plan? Will there be a nation who can come out of a pond? God uses everything and wastes nothing, right? Leah and Rachel all having their own ambitions and plans to one-up each other. No God in sight. All, all they did was just using God to acknowledge their birth. While they're doing that, while they're competing, without any regards to see God's will, without any prayer or petition for children like Abraham and Isaac did, remember their wives were barren, and Abraham and Isaac, instead of competing or instead of like doing whatever they want, thought that it was good to do, they immediately prayed. But not these two ladies. They didn't, without any thought in seeking God's provision and giving God control of the situation, though they were thinking that they were doing it on their own, God is in the background orchestrating the birth of 12 sons, the 12 tribes of Israel. Though God appears to be absent, he is noticeably working through humans' fallen behavior. Let's continue. Verse 25, soon after Rachel had given birth to Joseph, Jacob said to Laban, Please release me so I can go home to my own country. Let me take my wives and children, for I have earned them by serving you, and let me be on my way. You certainly know how hard I have worked for you. Now, Jacob had every right to do this because he's family. But this is what happens. Laban goes, Please listen to me. I have become wealthy for the Lord has blessed me because of you. Here, as if he believes in that. Tell me how much I owe you. Again, an economic transaction. Whatever it is, I'll pay it. Jacob replied, You know how hard I've worked for you and how your flocks and herds have grown under my care. You had little indeed before I came, but your wealth has increased enormously. The Lord has blessed you through everything I've done. But now, what about me? When can I start providing my, for my own family? What wages do you want? Laban asked again. What the heck, man? Let the guy go, right? Jacob replied, Don't give me anything. Just do this one thing and I'll continue to tend and watch over your flocks. Let me inspect your flocks today and remove all the sheep and goats that are speckled or spotted, along with all the black sheep. Give these to me as my wages. In the future, when you check on the animals you have given me as my wages, you'll see that I have been honest. If you find in my flock any goats without speckle or spots or any sheep that are not black, you will know that I have stolen them from you. Laban goes, all right. Laban replied, it will be as you say. 
But that very day, Laban went out and, remo and removed the male goats that were streaked and spotted. All the female goats that were speckled and spotted or had white patches and all the black sheep. He took them all. He placed them in the care of his own sons. He took them a three days journey from where Jacob was. Meanwhile, Jacob stayed and cared for the rest of Laban's flock. Again, Laban has absolutely no respect for his relative. Instead of supporting Jacob and his young family, he still treats Jacob as an employee, asking what wages Jacob want. Laban is all about economic gain. His character is so obvious, and it's like Jacob, the old Jacob, to the nth degree, right? He's also dishonest, as we see in this passage. After agreeing to a settlement with Jacob with regards to speckled and spotted and whatever, Laban quickly takes them away so that Jacob doesn't have access to them. Now, at this juncture, we the readers are wondering what Jacob would do. After Laban treated him the way he, he did earlier, how his wife treated him, do you think he might open the possibility of asking God for help? Do you think he might not respond rationally out of his own instincts and instead seek God for help and spiritual discernment, just like Abraham and Isaac would? Nope. Let's continue. Verses 37 to 43. Then Jacob took some fresh branches from poplar, almond, and plane trees and peeled them off strips of bark, making white streaks on them. Then he placed these peeled branches in the watering troughs where the flocks came to drink, for that was where they mated. And when they mated in front of the white streaked branches, they gave birth to young that were streaked, speckled, and spotted. Jacob separated those lambs from Laban's flock, and at mating time, he turned the flock to face Laban's animals that were streaked or black. That is how he built his own flock instead of increasing Laban's. Whenever the stronger females were ready to mate, Jacob would place the peeled branches in the watering trough in front of them. Then they would mate in front of the branches. But he didn't do this with the weaker ones. So the weaker lambs belonged to Laban, and the stronger ones were Jacob's. As a result, Jacob became very wealthy with large flocks of sheep, goats, female and male servants, and many camels and donkeys. Instead, Jacob again used his own ingenuity and also partly superstition to get even with Laban. He knew that Laban was cheating on him. And so what did he do? Instead of entreating to God again, praying to God for discernment, he used his own ingenuity and superstition. Still the old Jacob. And like the beginning where he, was, where he just so happens to find a well with shepherds belonging to Laban, without even giving a slightest consideration that this may be God's providence for him, here we see that he has given no recognition or acknowledgement that God granted him success. Why would stripping bark from a branch work? No, it sounds stupid. And that's what the author is telling us. Jacob, thinking that he's brilliant, not giving God the benefit, not acknowledging God's providence, Jacob is still his old self. When will he grow up? How much more pruning will God do on him? How many consequences will Jacob need to do to, or need to endure before he realizes that ultimately God is sovereign? It's coming. And unfortunately, just like the time when Esau wanted to kill him, this time around, this wake-up call, <laughs> this expeciation of growing up has to involve a threat to Jacob's life. And like Dan would say, deja vu. Verses 1 to 13. 
of chapter 31. But Jacob soon learned that Laban's sons were grumbling about him. Now, the word grumbling is actually wanting to kill him. Jacob has robbed our father of everything, they said. He has gained all his wealth at our father's expense. And Jacob began to notice a change in Laban's attitude toward him. Then the Lord said to Jacob, Return to the land of your father and grandfather and to your relatives there, and I will be with you. So Jacob called Rachel and Leah out to the field where he was watching his flock. He said to them, I have noticed that your father's attitude toward me has changed, but the God of my father has been with me. You know how hard I have worked for your father, but he has cheated me, changing my wages ten times. But God has not allowed him to do me any harm. For if he said the speckled animals would be your wages, the whole flock began to produce speckled young. And when he changed his mind and said the striped animals would be your wages, then the whole flock produced striped young. In this way, God has taken your father's animals and given them to me. One time during the mating season, I had a dream and saw that the male goats mating with the females were streaked, speckled, and spotted. Then in my dream, the angel of God said to me, Jacob, and I replied, yes, here I am. The angel said, look up and you will see that only the streaked, speckled, and spotted males are mating with the females of your flock. For I have seen how Laban has treated you. I am the God who appeared to you at Bethel, the place where you anointed the pillar of stone and made your vow to me. Now get ready and leave this country and return to the land of your birth. Rachel and Leah responded, that's fine with us. We won't inherit any of our father's wealth anyway. He has reduced our rights to those of foreign women. And after he sold us, he wasted the money you paid for him, uh, for us. All the wealth God has given you from our father legally belongs to us and our children. So go ahead and do whatever God has told you. Whew. So Jacob put his wives and children on camels, and he drove all his livestock in front of them. He packed all the belongings he had acquired in Padanaram and set out for the land of Canaan, where his father Isaac lived. At the time they left, Laban was some distance away shearing his sheep. Rachel stole her father's household idols and took them with her. What? Why? Jacob outwitted Laban with the Aramean, for they set out secretly and never told Laban they were leaving. So Jacob took all his possessions with him and crossed the Euphrates River, heading for the hill country of Gilead. After restating what the ladies already knew about how their dad deceived and cheated their husband, we see something that we have not seen in Jacob. Finally, after the second threat to his life in the hands of not Esau, but Laban's sons, Jacob now mentions God. In fact, he realizes that it wasn't his ingenuity that made him successful. It wasn't his hard work or physical muscle or his cunning shrewdness. He finally realizes that God was the conductor who orchestrated his success and he testified his encounter with his wives. One of the most significant evidence that Jacob has finally taken the first step towards spiritual maturity is to finally act and fulfill his role as a spiritual leader, the patriarch that God has given him. And here we see it in action, finally taking the lead, not as some pawn or some employee, but taking the helm as the head of the household, which will soon be the 12 nations of Israel. Finally, God's providence and pruning through labor and toil, through all the consequences of his actions, God's providence in all that Jacob experienced, Jacob finally grows up and accepts his God-given vision, his role as a patriarch for Israel. For Laban, the tables are now turned against him. God's justice is now on Laban. There's something to be learned here, but we'll wait near the end. Let's continue first. Verse 22. 
Three days later, Laban was told that Jacob had fled. So he gathered a group of his relatives and set out in hot pursuit. Now, this hot pursuit in Hebrew is basically they really want to kill him. He caught up with Jacob seven days later in the hill country of Gilead. But the previous night, God had appeared to Laban the Aramean in a dream and told him, I'm warning you, leave Jacob alone. Laban caught up with Jacob as he was camped in the hill country of Gilead, and he set up his camp not far from Jacob's. What was camped in the, in the, sorry, what do you mean by deceiving me like this? Laban demanded. How dare you drag my daughters away like prisoners of war? Why did you slip away secretly? Why did you deceive me? And why didn't you say you wanted to leave? I would have given you a farewell feast with singing and music accompanied by tambourines and harps. Why didn't you let me kiss my daughters and grandchildren and tell them goodbye? You have acted very foolishly. I could destroy you, but the God of your father appeared to me last night and he warned me, leave Jacob alone. Hmm. I can understand your feelings that, that you must go and your intense longing for your father's home, but why have you stolen my gods? Wait a minute. Laban didn't even mention about the flocks. He mentioned about the gods. So he knew that he, was do, he, he cheated on Jacob with the rest of the flocks. Wasn't it Laban who treated his daughters as mere economic commodities and traded them for Jacob's hard labor? Wasn't it Laban who treated his, da his daughters as prisoners of war? Wasn't it Laban who deceived Jacob and cheated Jacob from the settlement earlier about the flocks? And mind you, he didn't even mention about the flocks in this dialogue. And now he's gaslighting Jacob, putting himself morally superior than Jacob and playing the victim card. And wasn't it Laban who all along was envious of Jacob and wanted to grab Jacob's wealth for himself? And wasn't it Laban who used a feast to deceive Jacob? And now he's mentioning that he would pull another feast on him. I'm sure we met and we're about to meet and we'll probably meet more, many Labans in our lives. And you got to wonder whether those Labans in our lives is God's providence to enable us to mature in our faith. So let's hold that thought. Let's continue. Verse 31, I rushed away because I was afraid, Jacob answered. I thought you would take your daughters from me by force. He would have. Remember the heart pursuit? But as for your gods, see if you could find them and let the person who has taken them die. Boy, Jacob's angry. And if you find anything else that belongs to you, identify it before all these relatives of ours and I will give it back. But Jacob did not know that Rachel had stolen the household idols. Laban went first into Jacob's tent to search there, then into Leah's, and then the tents of the two servant wives, but he found nothing. Finally, he went into Rachel's tent. Dun, dun, dun. But Rachel had taken the household idols and hidden them in her camel saddle, and now she was sitting on them. When Laban had thoroughly searched her tent without finding them, she said to her father, Please, sir, forgive me if I don't get up for you. I'm having my monthly period. So Laban continued his search, but he could not find the house of idols. Then Jacob became very angry. He was already angry. Now he's very angry. And he challenged Laban. What's my crime? He demanded. What have I done wrong to make you chase after me as though I were a criminal? You have rummaged through everything I own. Now show me that what you found that belongs to you. Sit it out here in front of us before our relatives for all to see. Let them judge between us. For 20 years I have been with you, caring for your flocks, and all that time your sheep and goats never miscarried. In all those years, I never used a single ram of yours for food. If any were attacked and killed by wild animals, I never showed you the carcass and asked you to reduce the count of your flock. No, I took the loss myself. You made me pay for 
every stolen animal, whether it was taken in broad daylight or in the dark of the night. I worked for you through the scorching heat of the day and through cold and sleepless nights. Yes, for 20 years I have slaved in your house. I worked for 14 years earning your two daughters and then six more years for your flock. Notice that he now, notice that Jacob now acknowledges that Leah is his wife. And you changed my wages 10 times. In fact, if the God of my father had not been on my side, the God of Abraham, the fearsome God of Isaac, you would have sent me away empty-handed. But God has seen your abuse in my hard work. That is why he appeared to you last night and rebuked you. How on earth did Jacob change all of a sudden? It's through God's providence. Now, let's continue. Milwaukee said sent something really interesting about Rachel sitting on Laban's idols. And it's equivalent to this, and I paraphrase what Waukee is saying. He says, she's basically telling this to her dad. Yeah, dad, your idols are equivalent to the value of tampons. Why did Rachel steal her dad's idols? Waukee said, one possibility is out of spite against her dad for treating her and her sister like commodities, prisoners of war. And you know what? Based on the tradition of the day, a menstruating woman was deemed as unclean, and for her to sit on Laban's treasured idols, that's pretty much synonymous to flipping a bird at him. Oh, not just a bird, a whole flock of birds. But here's the main point out of this lengthy ordeal. Rachel stole Laban's idols. Jacob didn't know and claims to be innocent, rather angrily because he's still in a pissed off mood. Jacob again makes a deal with Laban. Man, this kid has a lot of work to do, hey? And if Laban did indeed find the idols under Rachel's derriere, not only would Jacob lose his integrity and what he has already accomplished, he would have lost Rachel. In other words, Jacob would have lost everything. Quite a tense moment that our author has taken us into, right? Yet the question is not what Jacob, Rachel, or Laban will do next. It's whether God will again intervene. Is God's grace, his providence, is it boundless, soul boundless, that God will honor his covenant with Abraham regardless of how fallen, broken these individuals are? How fallen and broken his descendants were? Jacob again dishes out his fury based on his feelings and instincts. Rachel, she ain't a perfect lamb either, right? She's like Jacob. Can God still orchestrate his redemptive plan through this screwed up family? Yes, he can. Laban somehow believed Rachel. Somehow he believed Rachel. God was indeed making this all possible. Because Laban wouldn't have believed Rachel, but God made it possible. God's justice prevailed. Let's continue. Verse 43. Then Laban replied to Jacob, These women are my daughters. These children are my grandchildren. These flocks are my flocks. In fact, everything you see is mine. No, Laban, you forgot your deal. You forgot your settlement. You forgot your contract. But let's just ignore that. That's what he said. But what can I do now about my daughters and their children? So come, let's make a covenant, you and I. It's like as if he's, he sees all these issues and he knows that he's guilty now. He just smiles and goes, let's make a deal. And it will be a witness to our commitment. So Jacob took a stone and set it up as a monument. Then he told his family members, gather some stones. So they gathered stones and piled them in a heap. Then Jacob and Laban sat down beside the pile of stones to eat a covenant meal. To commemorate the event, Laban called the place Yegar Sahaduda, which means witness pile in Aramaic. 
and Jacob called it Galid, which means witness pile in Hebrew. Then Laban declared, this pile of stones will stand as a witness to remind us of the covenant we have made today. This explains why it was called Galid witness pile. But it was also called Mizpah, which means watchtower. For Laban said, may the Lord keep watch between us to make sure that we keep his co this covenant when we are out of each other's sight. Again, Laban is gaslighting, right? He's taking the moral high ground, which he's not even moral. If you mistreat my daughters or if you marry other wives, God will see it even if no one else does. He is a witness to this covenant between us. See this pile of stones, Laban continued, and see this monument I have set between us? Wait, Jacob said that. Jacob is the one that set up the monument, not Laban. They stand between us as witnesses of our vows. I will never pass this pile of stones to harm you, and you must never pass these stones or this monument to harm me. Ooh, insurance. I call on the God of our ancestors, the God of your grandfather Abraham, and the God of my grandfather Nahor, to serve as judge between us. So Jacob took an oath before the fearsome God of his father Isaac to respect the boundary line. Then Jacob offered a sacrifice to God there on the mountain and invited everyone to a covenant feast. After they had eaten, they spent the night on the mountain. Laban got up early the next morning and he kissed his grandchildren and his daughters and blessed them. Then he left and returned home. Wow, what a lengthy passage. So, a truce has been made. We made it. What a long ordeal. To think that after Jacob had his first dream and watershed moment, remember? chapter 28, we would have thought that he would start taking steps to be more like his grandfather Abraham, at least change a little bit. Should have just took a few minutes, right? Nope. Instead, it took 20 plus years. He just kept on doing his own thing. However, rather than being a deceiver, he is now the one deceived and being exploited. And throughout his hardship and exploitation, God was pruning him to become the leader God desired him to be. God used Rachel, Leah, and Laban, especially Laban, to mold Jacob to be the patriarch of Israel. So how about us today? As I mentioned earlier, I'm sure we all have our Labans. Maybe not to the same degree or even, or even maybe more. You may be encountering or dealing with a Laban right now. Here are three takeaways I would like to leave with you to conclude. See, every Sunday... You don't know it, but when you're singing the songs, when you and I are singing these songs, we're praying. We're praying, uh, asking God to continue to work in us and change us and transform us to be who we truly are, save ones in Jesus. In other words, there's a full you and a full me breaking out of us. And every Sunday, we're asking God, inviting his spirit to work in us to become more like Jesus, more full to fulfill our God-given vision. And in Jacob's example, the desire that God will make us the opposite of who we were before we accepted Jesus Christ, right? Uh, are we, were, were we uh, habitual liars? Were we habitually lack of integrity? Have we were habitually a procrastinator? We wanted to be different. We want God to change us. We want to be habitually honest, habitually have integrity, have habitually motivated, and, and not angry, not selfish, not greedy, but generous and patient and loving. We desire God to transform us to the opposite of what we were before we accepted Jesus. Well, guess what? It's not going to be sunshine and rainbows. He didn't promise that. No, he 
will give you and I labels. Labels that will treat us the way we treat others. Reveal who we are to the nth degree and will test us to see whether our new self will respond by depending on God rather than responding back to our old selves and our gut instincts. You know, fight or flight. That's the first point. God uses labels to mold us, to respond to our prayers of our desire to change us and transform us from the way we used to be. Second, many times we don't see God overtly present in all our circumstances. When a coworker cheats on us or backstabs us or gossips, when a relative gossips about us, when a church member spreads rumors, it's hard to see God's hand at work in present, right? Yet, we have to remind ourselves that God is indeed at work. Everything we see should not be seen as a failure or a catastrophe or something to be angry about, but an opportunity to open our eyes and see God's will working out before us. How we see things is not how, how God sees it. When we see it's a lost cause, God will see everything and he wastes nothing. God will use everything and waste nothing. And all times, God is really working in us. And lastly, God's justice will prevail. When we are hurt by the Labans, two things happen when we choose to depend on God and remain faithful to him. We, personally, become more like Jesus and continue to live out our God-given vision. While at the same time, God's judgment is upon these Labans who are hurting us. We can trust that God will bring out justice. We do not need to do it ourselves. We don't need to whip out, uh, whip out our um, smackdown on people. Instead, we see the Labans as God's providence for us to transform us from our old selves to become our new selves. Amen.